did you call it call this case for argument yeah all right mr duncan yes good morning your honor good morning counsel may it please the court robert duncan on behalf of the plaintiff's appellants in this case plaintiff appellants claims in this case are not properly dismissed at the 12b6 stage they're not properly dismissed for three specific reasons First and foremost, the filed rate doctrine should not be applied to the insurance industry in the state of Missouri. Certainly not the long-term care insurance industry in the state of Missouri, and most certainly not at this stage of the litigation. The filed rate doctrine has never been applied in the state of Missouri until this case, until the uh, lower court decided that it was uh, an affirmative defense uh, in cases against insurance companies like this one. The reason it shouldn't be applied is because, based on the evidence in the record at this early stage, there is no evidence to support that the filed rate doctrine should be applied to the insurance industry or the long-term care insurance industry. It's not an it's not an evidentiary issue. It's not it's not an evidentiary issue, but there's from a legal standpoint, as a question of law, there is no basis on which to conclude that the filed rate doctrine would apply based on what we know at this stage. What was considered by the lower court is insufficient to find or support its conclusion. So how do all the other states? So all the other states are wrong. I'm not saying all the other states are wrong. What I'm saying is that the lower court in this situation is wrong based on the analysis that it performed. The analysis that it performed disregarded information that is within the record that supports that the Missouri State Supreme Court would find the exact opposite of what the district court suggested. In other words, the Missouri State Supreme Court would say the filed rate doctrine does not apply to the insurance industry. And the primary reason why it doesn't apply is because it lacks the common denominator where the filed rate doctrine has been appropriately applied. And that's where a regulatory agency has approved the filed rate. In this case, the rate has not been approved. The Missouri Department of Insurance does not approve long-term care insurance rates. It also doesn't approve commercial casualty rates. It says as much in the statutes All right, that- give me, the, give me a case that defines approved the way you want it. Because I think, I think your, your focus on approved versus not rejected um, is, I, is not, sound, not persuasive to me. Your Honor, I can't point to a case that, that focuses or defines well, the word plain approved. La- plain the, language says, that, you know, that, that the, the word approved doesn't have to be there. Your it Honor. Wasn't, it, wasn't, it wasn't in Keogh or, you know, it, it's just not. Yes, it has to be, it has to be thoroughly regulated, and the rate has to be, well, subject to approval. Here, here it's, it's subject to approval. It can be rejected. No, but here's the, here's the issue, Judge. I'm not the one that's drawing the distinction between accepted and approved. It's the Missouri Department of Insurance that's drawing that distinction. The Missouri Department of Insurance, in correspondence to MetLife, says, stating or implying to insureds or prospective insureds that any item marked, quote, filed were approved by the department will be viewed as a fraudulent act committed by the company. So it's not as though I'm splitting hairs here. It's the Department of Insurance that has disavowed itself of the ability to approve a rate that's been submitted to its regulatory body. Does the uh, Missouri Department of Insurance, does it actually reject rates occasionally um, that are submitted? Because I would assume that if you quadruple the rate, you know, in a a single year, that they're going to reject that. So do they reject uh, using that term as it's been used in other contexts? They return those rates to the insurance company. 
They say, we need X, Y, and Z, but they haven't rejected a rate based on the hypothetical that you just gave where it's a quadrupling of the rate. I was just curious. I'm giving that sort of as, a, as an extreme example. Do you know any cases where they've rejected a rate, whether it be double, triple, you know, 10%, 5%, or is it merely we need more information once they get the information, they rubber stamp it? I'm not aware of any situation where the Missouri Department of Insurance has rejected a rate. They have requested or um, uh, scheduled the rate to be uh, implemented over a number of years as opposed to one year, but I'm not aware of a situation where they have rejected a rate increase. Um, all that being said, I think it's, it's uh, based on the totality of the information, application of the filed rate doctrine to the um, long-term care insurance industry in the state of Missouri disregards what Missouri courts have uh, accepted in other industries and, and required of other industries, and that's to demonstrate that the rate itself has been approved. And you need to okay, give me, give me the, you need to look no further than cases. You know this question of approved. They require the the um, the inflation protection rider, and and they look at the specific rider that's that's being adopted by an insurer <clears throat> and until they uh, until that's accepted it can't be used right your honor what they do is they accept the information that's provided by the insurance company based on the scheme that exists the regulatory scheme that exists there is no evidence that they approve the rate that is going to be charged that being said even if this court is inclined to extend the application of the filed rate doctrine to the long-term care insurance industry, it does not properly bar plaintiff's claims in this case. Plaintiff's claims in this case have been grossly mischaracterized by MetLife. The reason they've been grossly mischaracterized by MetLife is because they need to do that in order for the filed rate doctrine to be an, a defense to the plaintiff's claims. Plaintiff's claims do not quarrel with the rate or the rate charged or the premium increase that was implemented. Plaintiff's claims are very simply that they were defrauded based on affirmative misrepresentations and in information withheld into paying an accepted rate. But that was the information that was submitted to the regulators, correct? So the, so the information that you're alleging was false is the same information that was submitted to the regulators, correct? N no, Your Honor. The information that we're alleging is false is the information that was provided to these insureds in the policy describing the product that they purchased, namely the 5% compound interest rider. Right, but, but to get that, didn't they have to submit to the regulators that this is, we anticipate that this rate will, uh, forgive me for not remembering the exact language, but they had to present to the regulators how they came up with that number and, and why they believed um, the statement that they presented to the insured. Am I not right? They had to provide actuarial justification for the rate that they intended to charge to the Missouri Department of Insurance. That is correct. What we're quarreling with and what we believe we've been aggrieved by is the language that was used to induce the purchase of this rider. It sets aside whatever Which was... was language submitted to the regulators? The language... The language you're relying, you're relying on <clears throat> could, be, could be inferred. And your argument could be inferred by the regulator from the information they received. But the filed rate doctrine applies only to the rate, 
It doesn't apply to the misrepresentations that were made to the insureds well, as alleged in this case. That's your argument. The filed rate doctrine doesn't, doesn't apply to fraud. And I, I didn't find, I don't, I, there's case law against that. Yeah, it, how, how, what about the fraud? I mean, I, it seems like there's a couple steps here. Then the fraud mm-hmm. exception. What's your view on that? Um, because there are several courts that have said there's just no, at least talking about the filed rate doctrine as a thing, not necessarily applied here, <coughs> but that there is no fraud exception. So the, the fraud exception, again, it focuses in the context of the filed rate, it focuses on the filed rate. It doesn't give a regula- regulated entity carte blanche to make whatever representations it might want to make to the consumers that are out there buying its product. Can, well, can I follow? What representation was made that wasn't in the filings? The, represent- the specific representation that was made is that as a result, so, quote, your premium is not expected to increase as a result of the benefit amount increases provided by this rider. They disavowed or disclaimed a relationship between the amount being paid. Yeah, there's no disavow there. Sure. It doesn't address the question. I think that conclusion is very premature, and it's subject to discovery in this case, because what the evidence will show, and I know it will show, is that there is a relationship between these folks purchasing this rider, paying double at the outset for a 5% increase in the daily benefit amount, and future premium rate increases. You'll probably, you're, you'll probably your expert witness will probably be an insurance regulator. We'll likely have a myriad of, of uh, experts that are going to comment on and this the case. Insurance regulator said, "Yeah, but, I, well." And on cross exam, <laughs> you could have told that you would have known that from the filing with your knowledge of how this business works, and he'd say, "Right." But again, we're not quarreling with what they did in terms of how they calculated the premium the premium that they charged, or even the rate increase or premium increase that they've implemented. What we're quarreling with is the representations that were made. No, you're really saying it was the failure to, it was the failure to advise something that you knew was going to happen, and the plaintiffs weren't smart enough to know that because they, they aren't in the business. Well, I, I think that touches on some of what we're saying. There's no doubt that MetLife was in a far superior position in terms of what they knew or didn't know in terms of the, what the future held. That's what their, their job is as an insurance company. But we were induced fraudulently to pay an accepted rate. And that needs to allow, be allowed to stand, certainly at the 12B6 stage. Furthermore, the administrative requirement or administrative review did not need to be exhausted under the facts as alleged in this case based on the claims that plaintiffs are making related to those statements that they were defrauded by. Why not? If it has to do with, I I think that this is looser than perhaps the filed rate doctrine and that it seems to be covered by the plain language of the, the delegation for exhaustion or the administrative agency review. Because as I've articulated, plaintiffs' claims are not the the rate, the rate schedule, the rate premium, or the underwriting rules. It has to do with the representations that were made and the information that was withheld, which which is separate and distinct from what is required or what uh, circumstances require administrative review. You don't think it's related to the underwriting rules? I mean, your whole theory is based on how they underwrote this policy and the actual actuarial tables they used to to set the premium and, and project the future. 
Yeah, and that's the mischaracterization that MetLife has led the district court into believing or understanding, and now this uh, court potentially, is that that's what this case is about, and it's not. We don't quarrel with that. It has nothing to do with the underwriting rules. As we allege in paragraph 72 of our complaint, if MetLife had stayed silent on this issue, had not said, as a result of the benefit amount increases provided by this rider, and simply conveyed the information that was required by statute to the insureds, we wouldn't be here. There would be no claim. But they took a step too far, right? They understood and knew going into this transaction that they were protected, or arguably protected, by the filed rate doctrine. And then they went further. But because they wanted to bring all these people in, the disclosure, here's the problem that I'm having, though. The disclosure also says that we reserve the right to um, to increase the premiums on a class-wide basis. And so, you know, then again, I think that gets at the underwrite, potential underwriting rules, which is they're acknowledging that as if, a, if a class of people, if the, if the circumstances change, you may, in fact, uh, have, have premium increases. And again, I, I think, just think that that might be an underwriting rules type situation. So we reserve the right to increase premiums on a class-wide basis is not what we're acting on. That's not what we're bringing our claims on. That was apparent in the policy. That's the right that they had. And we don't quarrel with their right to do that or how they did it or the information that they supplied to do it. And isn't that what happened? I mean, they, they increased on a class-wide basis, They right? absolutely did, yes. And that's not a problem for you, you don't think? It is not. Okay, tell me why. It's not a problem because that's not what we're acting on here. We've pled, as required under Rule 9, this dynamic scheme that existed that MetLife employed to get as many people into this product as they possibly could, knowing that they're going to collect double premiums over decades before anybody is likely going to make a claim. Right? We're looking at that narrow area where the transaction occurred and where the policy was provided and why people bought this rider. Well, let me Not ask you this. how they priced it, the price of it, or the future price of it, but why did they make the decision to purchase the ride? Well, let me ask you this. Um, could your clients have sort of filed an, an administrative grievance, administrative complaint, saying, hey, they promised me that they wouldn't raise the rates, and here's the policy, and you should do something about that and not let them raise the rates on a class-wide basis? Or would that have just been rejected as outside the, the scope of an administrative process? I, I would say that I can't speculate as to what the department would have done under those circumstances. However, what I can say is in response to the question, it wasn't, based on the theory that we're pursuing here, it wouldn't be that they raised the rates. It would be that we were told that there was a disconnect or they disclaimed the relationship between um, the benefit amount that was provided by this rider and future premium increases. I'll uh, save the balance of my time for rebuttal, which will... Be fast. Thank you. Ms. Hauser? Good morning, Your Honors. Sandra Hauser from Denton's on behalf of Metropolitan Life Insurance Company. Um, Your Honors, plaintiff's allegations in this case go directly to the heart of what the insurance regulators in Missouri and Illinois regulate, which is the adequacy of premium rates and the compliance of those rates with the comprehensive statutory and regulatory regime that governs them in both states. This is readily apparent when you compare the allegations of plaintiff's complaint here with the precise inquiry that Missouri and Illinois undertake. And the district court did a very detailed analysis of this. 
Plaintiff's core allegation here is that MetLife knowingly underpriced its long-term care insurance to justify future rate increases. They point to language saying that rates are not expected to increase as a result of the benefits provided by the rider. When you look at what Missouri and Illinois require, Missouri and Illinois, first of all, require MetLife to offer the inflation rider and require that MetLife include an offer of premium which the insurer expects to remain constant. That is in the Missouri regulations at section 400-4.111F and in the Illinois Administrative Code title 50-2012.80F. They're required to include that language. What do you take? They or, can't stay how, silent. But how do, you, how do you deal with opposing counsel's argument that they don't really approve anything? They don't I mean, that they've never rejected anything to his knowledge. They've spread out the increase in premiums, but it seems like the, that's one thing that potentially stops the filed rate doctrine from strictly applying. Yeah, here again, Your Honor, it's an, it's an excellent question, and it's one that the district court tackled at great length at pages um, in the uh, uh, addendum um, 12 to 14 of that opinion. Um, there are three reasons why um, it's very clear that both states here actually are approving rates. First of all, when you look at the statutory scheme at issue, both states clearly have the power to enforce, not only enforce rates, right, but enforce compliance with the regulation I just mentioned, with the statutory section that focuses first primarily and um, not exclusively, but primarily on premium rate adequacy. There's the power to investigate. There's the power to, cease, to order cease and desist from offering a rate that's inadequate. It is a very robust um, statutory scheme that authorizes the Missouri director to remedy any violation or anything that looks like a substantial step toward a violation, both at the most general level and at the specific level of long-term care rates. So I, the first thing I would point to is that statutory scheme. And um, Your Honor, Judge Loken, you, you actually rehearsed that scheme in, in your 2008 opinion in the Saunders case, which is not a filed rate decision. It's on, it was your decision on the McCarran-Ferguson Act but it's a very detailed recitation of the statutory um, authority generally of the Missouri Department. And do they but actually do they actually carry out that authority? Is that your understanding? They do. Okay. They do because my point number two here is look if you look at the record in this case, um, if you look at the record of the actual filings here by MetLife, I mean there's there's five hundred pages of record. But but look specifically at um, one page of the record, which is Appendix 2634. In 2016, when MetLife put in its request for a rate increase, um, Missouri rejected that. I mean, before, they, before they, you even get to the fact of rejection, there is extensive correspondence between each of the states here, Missouri and Illinois, and MetLife about their filings. Illinois goes so far as to hire an independent actuarial firm to analyze the rate filings. There are questions, there are letters back and forth, and Missouri, at that page of the record I cited, said to MetLife, we, we don't agree with this rate increase. We think the rate increase isn't supported, and there's, um, forgive me if I'm not able to read this small type here from the podium, but Missouri said the projected losses on this block of business might imply the need for a substantial rate increase However, it's not clear, and they go on to explain 
um, what will happen in their view in terms of what they call shock lapses if this if this rate is approved. Suppose now, is, is that a rejection? I don't know. If you're my client, MetLife, are you going to say, "Oh, you, Missouri, you don't you don't have the power to tell me what to do. I'm going to go ahead and do this." I mean, that that's that's kind of what plaintiffs suppose, are saying. Suppose though that that. Um I'm just trying to figure out the limits of the argument. Suppose we have the exact same facts, except for MetLife says, we, we promise we will never raise rates in your lifetime, period, full stop. And two years later, MetLife decides, oh my goodness, we've got, you know, it's just the actual, actual we're going to take a huge loss on this. We're going to increase it by $100. Now, under that hypothetical, does the filed rate doctrine apply? Well, I, I think you would have a different you would have a different claim here, and you probably would have a breach of contract claim. But I do think I do think there would be, and that's not this case. I understand there would, there would be a very strong argument still that the foul rate doctrine applies because MetLife can't raise its rates without going to Missouri and Illinois and actually each department in, in the country for that rate that, increase and justifying it. In that hypothetical, the regulator might might say, "Well, you can do that, but you have to file a new rate." You're, you're, you're talking about you're talking about uh, you know you you said you wouldn't do this and you say now we have to and okay file a new rate right I mean look if, I mean, if, isn't isn't that part a, a, a likely that, part of the regular of insurance regulation that that's right and look the, it is it is beyond clear here that the regulators take this very seriously the long-term care regulation is is some 50 pages long now is there to, to your question about the limits of the doctrine we're not standing here saying there is nothing that a plaintiff could say about a long-term term care insurance policy that that wouldn't run into the the filed rate doctrine there are things that could be said about about the coverage, the coverage offered, you know, there, there are all kinds of, of cases that could be brought, but not one like this case I just case wonder whether that, that should give us pause, that hypothetical should give us pause, because even if it goes to the, to the regulator, I mean, what drives a lot of insurance is the rate. If, if MetLife is making this promise and their rate is, say, half what the rate of a competitor is, and then they immediately turn around. I mean, a, a uh, insurance is going to feel pretty aggrieved that they pay two or three years versus of rates, and now they can't afford the insurance policy anymore. They might feel aggrieved, but but both the policy the policyholder in that situation would have a clear right to go to the Missouri Department and complain. That's fair. Um, that gets to exhaustion. MetLife could not, or, or any insurance company, because I mean, part of the public public record factual background here is that MetLife is not the only long-term care insurance company that has raised its rates. Um, you know, it's pretty right. clear across the industry that that nobody knew how to how to price these products and every company has sought rate increases based on their experience. But that, you know, sort of leaving that aside, MetLife could not have just gone ahead and um, increased its rates, it would have to either file a new form, file a new file a new rate, and get authority and approval for that rate increase, supported by an extensive actuarial memoranda. And that actuarial memoranda um, can't just say, "Oh, well, you know, looks like we're not, you know, making money. We need that." You have to actually justify the rate increase based on criteria that's also set forth. In the in the regulatory scheme in both of these states and in other states as well, you have to show how your actual experience is different than what you expected at pricing, right? And and remember here, 
that the regulation requires and offer a premium which the insurer expects to remain constant. On this, one last point on this, on the exhaustion of remedies, which you kind of briefly hinted at, if they would have exhausted their remedies, if the plaintiffs exhaust their remedies and say, hey, this is completely unfair, it's a misrepresentation, it's fraud, et cetera, could the director of insurance then go back and say, okay, and I'm going to say they would do this, but could they go back and say, well, you actually need to refund those premiums to everybody or to, to everyone because we actually find that there's merit to the objection that, that and again, I'm making an assumption here that there's merit, uh, but is that so, if they would have exhausted their remedies, could they have received relief? Is that a possible thing? They, that the direct, and how would that, what would that look like? Um, well, um, I'm not sure I can answer the question of exactly what that would look like. However, it's very clear that Missouri has the power to do that, and the power to do that comes comes in a in a couple different. There's, uh, you know, the the Missouri director has, as I mentioned before, can issue an order of cease and desist, can take, um, can order an insurer to take any action necessary or. or appropriate to comply with the laws of the does state that under include, the statute. Does that include the power to order a refund, a premium refund? Um, yes, I believe it does. Well, is there a case supporting? I don't know that there is. That's not prospective. I don't, know that, there, I don't know that there is a case um, where the Missouri Department has, has ordered that. We're, we weren't able to find one. Whether that would be reported case law or not, I'm not well, how about sure. Well, how about a... Can you can you go to court in Missouri? Can the can a can a district court order a premium refund? Sure. A, a, well, actually, um, the the law in this state is that um, if if what a plaintiff is seeking is a refund of a rate that's been filed with the department, then it runs right into the filed rate doctrine. That's kind of one of the core elements well, of the, of the filed rate doctrine. That presumes the first issue, which there's no Missouri case adopting the filed rate doctrine in Missouri other than the district court decision, which is the issue before us. There is there is no there is no directly on point Missouri decision. Yeah. However, to Mr. Duncan's point, um, saying that that he believes the Missouri Supreme Court would reject that application, I think I think the opposite is is true. Here you have a situation where there is, and I won't repeat myself again. Yeah. There's quite a robust um, statutory scheme here and regulatory scheme. It's a highly regulated area. This court, although you know, understand that you might interpret Missouri law. Is not is not a Missouri court per se, but I, I thought Missouri courts had applied the filed rate doctrine, just not in insurance yet. Oh yes, yeah. there, there's there's well, plenty there's plenty yeah. of so, decisions so applying the applying the filed rate doctrine, you know, and, and if this every court, other industry, why not this one? Right, and, and look, this court in um, a case called H.J. Um, in 1992, um, you know, has an extensive discussion of the foul rate doctrine and Missouri's acceptance of the foul rate doctrine. So there are plenty of district court decisions as well that apply apply the foul rate doctrine. Putting our eerie hat on, the question is: Would is not would they would the Supreme Court of Missouri pluck the foul rate doctrine out of the blue from federal law? It's would they extend what's already been done? To, to this industry and this particular kind of insurance. That's that's right, um, and I think the I think the record here, and I think that the, the statutory structure here um, roundly supports that as the district court reasoned as as the district court held here. And is that is that the main is that the main support for applying it is the regulatory scheme. 
Well, it's it's the, it's the regulatory scheme, and um, and Judge Kelly, it's it's the fact that the allegations here go directly to the heart of what of what the regulator is regulating, right? Like, it's not just the idea that there's like a lot of insurance law out there, right? It's that these allegations go right at the heart of what the Missouri regulator is looking at when it approves rates. It is looking under statutory directive and under its own regulations at premium rate ad adequacy and requiring the very representations that are challenged. So I think it's it's those things in combination, right? And it's also that, I mean, there are a couple other factors here, right? Like plaint plaintiffs can't prove this case without going directly at retracing, rethinking, and redoing the exact analysis that the Missouri regulator has done here. They can't because prove. Basically, basically, it's it's a fraud on both the regulator and the consumer. Is that? Their theory is that it's a fraud on the re on the regulator and on the consumer and because it's really the same thing. They're, you know, they're sort of saying you didn't tell plaintiffs what you told the regulator, but they told the regulator in great depth what every every actuarial step that's supporting the rates that were proposed in order to justify and satisfy the requirement that the rates that MetLife was putting forth, as they say in the policy, are adequate and expected to remain constant, which was which Missouri found true at the time. There, there's ample law, and I'm running short on time, but there's ample law in our briefs that fraud on a regulator is not a defense to the foul rate doctrine. So, so and, you, and you're, you're confident that Missouri would take that next step as well? Because we've sort of got multiple steps, right? That they would extend it to the insurance industry and then to long-term care, and then if you'd have to get there, that there would be no fraud exception. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the easiest part is that there's no fraud exception because there's just such such a bevy of law on that point. Um, but I don't think I don't think it's a leap. And I think if you if this court only looks at its own precedents on the on the foul rate doctrine, you will see that it, it there, there's not all of the different criteria for applying the foul rate doctrine applies equally in Missouri and federal law and courts across the country applies applies equally to the insurance industry as it does in an area like telephone rates or utility rates um, where the doctrine has been me, more heavily litigated. Let me come back to this remedy point. I yeah. thought the essence of the federal foul rate doctrine is no retroactive rate making. In other words, the, the foul rate doctrine precludes a federal court, if it applies, from ordering a premium refund. That's right. And yet that's their case. That's exactly, that's exactly, that's exactly right. So and no matter there, how so you spend should, their damages, it's asking for a refund. There should not be a Missouri court case ordering a refund of payments made to the provider of, of service or product to which the filed rate doctrine applies, like a Correct. railroad. So if if that 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 suggests that if the if the Department of Insurance thinks the filed rate doctrine applies, it would have the power to order a premium refund. Clearly, it would. But there's no. They've never taken a what would be called a position on that that we we could. 
look at? Um, I can't say absolutely that they've never taken no, a position on it, but I, I can tell you that we looked for an instance where, where Missouri took that kind of action and didn't find any. But I think if, if you look at what happens between Missouri and insurance companies on, on the filed rates, there's extensive dialogue. It's an iterative process. So for that kind of action to be taken, the, the regulator would have had to say, insurance company, you can't, you can't do that. And the insurance company said, well, you know, let, let's see what power you have to make me or something. You know, like the, the situation where that would come up would have to be pretty extreme. Um, no, but I, no, the, no. Most, the most I can tell you is I was not able to find. You've to, answered the question. Yeah. Thank you, Your Honors. I appreciate your time. Give you a minute for rebuttal. Thank you, Your Honor. I want to make three quick points. Number one, the filed rate doctrine as applied in the state of Missouri has always been contingent upon a regulatory agency approving the rate. In this case, what we have is communication from the department itself admonishing uh, MetLife from representing that the rate has been approved. For that reason alone, this court should not apply the filed rate doctrine to insurance or long-term care insurance. Number two, no better uh, statement highlights the uh, plaintiff's claims than the fact that absence the conduct at issue, the rate would still be the same. In other words, there is no relationship between the claims that we're making and the premium and the rate that was charged. And third, you asked, Your Honor, whether it was a fraud on the consumer or a fraud on the regulatory agency. One's actionable and one isn't. The fraud on the consumer outside of the rate is actionable under any circumstances, even if this court were to apply the filed rate doctrine to the insurance industry and long-term care insurance. A fraud and under- your, your best case, let's take a federal case with filed rate doctrine applied and that and your assertion was supported. I'm sorry, Your Honor. I didn't hear the question. I'm sorry. You just said the fraud on the consumer always always survives the application of the filed rate doctrine. No, I said the fraud on the consumer outside of attacking the rate or the premium survives. In other words, okay, the filed well, rate doctrine does give not... Give me a federal, a federal key old case that supports that distinction you just made. There's a numerous cases cited in our brief that are outline and articulate exactly how different states have applied the filed rate doctrine in a state context. I'm, I'm, I don't have at my fingertips a federal case okay, that would, would support that position. However, anything outside of uh, the rate or the uh, rate making process remains actionable, regardless of whether or not the filed rate doctrine applies. At the very least, plaintiff's claims have been dismissed at the 12B state. 12B6 stage prematurely. We ask that the district court be reversed and the case be sent back. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Case has been thoroughly briefed and argued, and we will take it under advisement. <clears throat>